0: Welcome to the Self and Society podcast, exploring what it means to flourish as an individual and a community. This is your host, Ari Armstrong. Music by Jordan Smith, cjsclassical.com. Please join my email list for updates or help support the show financially at ariarmstrong.com. Our guest today is Kevin Curry-Knight, a teaching associate professor in East Carolina University's College of Education. He's also the author of Education in the Marketplace, an Intellectual History of Pro-Market Libertarian Visions for Education in the 20th Century America. And he is president of the Board of Directors of the new Pathfinder Community School in Durham, North Carolina. So welcome, Professor. Thanks a lot for being on the show today. Thank you, Ari. We can talk a bit about the book toward the end, but I want the focus to be today on the idea of self-directed education. Yes. What it is, what it entails, and uh, what are some of the Questions people have about that, yeah. And I want to, I wanted to start off on a personal note because it is very personal for me because I have a four-year-old, and so in a year's time he'll be kindergarten age. And so I'm, I've actually toured several schools, and I'm thinking, do we want to send him to school? Does he want to go to school? If so, which school? Or do I want to homeschool? And if so, how will that go? Yeah. Um, some of my personal experiences, I had some generally horrible experiences in my public education history. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's, but I don't want to let that sort of bias me because I think that the schools around me now are a lot better than the worst of what I experienced. Um, I've also been influenced by the objectivist philosopher Leonard Peikoff, who has a set of lectures on education. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I thought I'd just ask uh, what, what are your own experiences with when you were younger in education and then With your child, I think you have a child roughly the same age as my child.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, I have a a child who's maybe a few months younger than yours. So he's a little over three and a half. And uh, I guess my journey into self-directed education really started both as a researcher and as a parent of a child. And, you know, when you're a parent of a child and you're already working in a college of education, you... You pay a lot more attention. Um, so I'm a historian and philosopher of education by training. And I, I always like to tell people like I learned everything about the history of childhood and, and the history of education, like once I had a little kid, and I could see him growing up and started thinking about like where to send him to school. So I know exactly, you know, what you're talking about there. Um, so my own experience is really, really unusual. So I'll <laughs> I'll give you the the short version. Um I was absolutely I don't want to say it was horrible in school. I did what I needed to do to survive. I remember being ambivalent about school in, in the sense of not like mixed emotions, but just like, well, this is something I have to do. It never occurred to me that there was another option. Uh, my parents like to remind me of how I, I tend to underplay that, that they're like, no, you were actually pretty miserable. Uh, you were miserable the whole time. Uh, we gave up on trying to get you to do homework in early middle school, just because we didn't want to fight that battle. Um, I almost dropped out of high school. I was about maybe two weeks from dropping out. I skipped a ton of school my junior year. I just went back and looked at my transcript and I missed uh, 41.5 days my junior year. So some of that was illness, but you know, like occasional bugs, occasional flu or, you know, uh, cold, most of it was skipping. I, I just put a lot of energy into skipping school. Um, so, and what's really interesting about that is I was talked into staying by my parents in, in school and they didn't really say we were going to make you stay in school, but they said, look, if you drop out, which you can totally do because you're at an age where you can make that decision legally, we just won't support you financially once you leave school. And there was one place that I really wanted to go to college if I went to college and that was Berkeley college music. So I was a drum set player. Um, I wanted to study music. That's the only thing I wanted to do. It's the only place I wanted to go. I got into Berkeley college of music. I, I scraped by my junior year. We brokered a deal where I'd had to turn in all the major projects and then uh, I could pass, got into Berkeley by the skin of my teeth. So I got into a music college on academic probation. So that's kind of how, how bad, uh, my transcript was in high school. And it really didn't get any better in college. I, I, kind of squeaked by at Berkeley too. I noticed when I look back at that transcript, every semester my GPA got lower and lower and lower and lower. Uh, got a degree from Berkeley. Started working at a bookstore in Nashville, Tennessee, because I wanted to be a songwriter. And the rule of songwriting is get a job that you don't really have to think about. So I worked in a bookstore. I kind of liked reading a little bit by that point, but I started reading stuff and I started reading like philosophy because that was one of the sections that I was assigned to to tend to. Um, to straighten up and stuff. And they, the bookstore would let you check out books as long as they were hardcover and, like, you know, bring them back in a few days. So I started reading philosophy and all this other stuff. And pretty soon I actually found that I was reading the stuff that I was supposed to read in high school and really avoided reading in high school on my own for pleasure. Um, so the one that I remember is The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Um, we had to read that, I think it was my junior year, maybe my sophomore year in high school. And I got busted by my father, who r- realized I wasn't reading the book, because one day he said, how's that Hester Prynne going, the, the main character of the book? I looked at it and said, what? It's like, you know, Hester Prynne, how's it going? I said, what, what are you talking about? Right? So I, I just avoided reading this book. And by the time I started reading philosophy and other stuff after college, I read it because I was getting into kind of the American transcendental movement, which the Hawthorne was a part of. So I was like, I got to read this book. I got to read some of Hawthorne's books because apparently he's got a lot of like transcendental ideas in here. Anyway, long story short, I started reading on my own the things that I was supposed to read in high school. And then, you know, the kid who almost dropped out uh, of high school ended up getting two master's degrees and a PhD. So that's, that's my story. That's really interesting. So that
0: contrasts with me a bit because I don't, I feel like my high school was better than some of my previous years, but I feel like, I felt like I would treated it like a game. Like I'm going to get good grades because that's what you're supposed to do. That's right. But I didn't feel like that my goal was actually learning or doing something that was enjoyable to me, but I did that on the side. So I feel like I learned a lot on my own. So, you know, I read, I was reading Milton Friedman back then and Ah, Ayn Rand and such. So I feel like I learned a lot during that time of my life, just not in the school environment But I didn't feel, I I wasn't sort of rebellious like you maybe were. I sort of thought, okay, I'm going to play the game and and get good grades and so on.
1: It's not an uncommon experience when I talk to people about, you know, the learning that you do on your own versus learning you do in school. And I ask them questions about it. It's a lot of folks kind of say the same thing. I've heard people say it like, um, I did school so that I could, so that I could like, I got school out of the way so I could go learn stuff. (laughs) And that's, that's an odd like turn of phrase, but I've heard that a few times and it's interesting.
0: Yeah. And, and part of me wonders, and well, and I think it's actually true, right? Was I overly conformist in certain ways and taking certain things more seriously than I should have like grades when I could have spent even more time (laughs) doing other stuff, even if my grades suffered a bit. Mm. So I'm, I don't know. I, it's, it's all water under the bridge at this point.
1: Right. There's actually sociological literature. This was actually literature that I stumbled across when I started thinking about self-directed education there's a fair amount of sociological literature that indicates that a good number of students see school as a game, as that sort of game. Like, here are the hurdles that I have to go through, and they're basically testing me to see how I can, how well I go through these hurdles. Um, different people call it different things. So, there's a researcher named Denise Pope. Uh, she calls it doing school because she uh, wrote a book where she followed successful high school students um, just to see like what separated them from other kids. Like, did they have superior memories? Did they? Um, have better note-taking skills. And what she found is that they quote unquote do school. I believe one of the students gave her that phrase, like I'm doing school. Um, they, you know, kind of strategize how to allocate their time to maximize their, their output for the least input. Uh, you know, all that stuff. Um, other people call it strategic learning, um, there as a book uh, by susan bloom uh who is an anthropologist and she studied how college students experience school and her book that that's the result of that research is called uh, i i love i i love learning i hate school and that was actually a quote from one of the students that that she uh, was interviewing said you know i love learning i do learning i learn all the time outside of school um and i'm involved in all these things but i hate school well that's kind of
0: depressing um and I guess that's why we're, I guess that's why we're having this discussion. That's, because, wh- that's why we're talking. Yeah, <laughs> right. because I mean, I think that a lot of people. I think that what you just described resonates with a lot of people in terms of what's kind of going on. Yeah. So let's start with a basic question. Yeah. What is self-directed education?
1: Yeah, it's self-directed education is probably best seen on a spectrum. So imagine a spectrum with two poles, and one pole is, um, te- you could call it teacher-directed education. And the other pole is self-directed education. So the idea is, you know, most of our education is controlled from outside of us. We don't have the locus of control. The teacher or school or curriculum or whatever it is decides what we're going to learn. It decides generally how we're going to learn it. It decides how long we have to learn it. It decides how we're going to demonstrate mastery of it, things like that. Self-directed education or self-directed learning is basically going towards that other pole, finding ways to, to bring the locus of control to the learner. So instead of the teacher deciding what it is you're going to learn, the learner decides what it is I'm going to learn. Instead of the teacher deciding, well, how long should you have to learn this? The learner decides, how long am I going to spend on this? Um, instead of the teacher saying, well, how am I going to demonst- How are you going to demonstrate mastery and how, how should I monitor your progress? The learner is now in charge of like, okay, well, how do I know that I'm progressing on this? So there are a lot of ways to bring choice into, into learning. And it's not even one spectrum. It's a variety of spectra. So, um, you know, there are schools, conventional schools that give students control over certain things. Um, Like I'm going to tell you what you have to learn, but I'm not going to tell you how you have to learn it. Here's a whole bunch of ways you could learn it and I'll help you learn it. Some, some teachers decide I'm not going to tell you how you demonstrate progress. Like you could take a test, you could write an essay, you could do an audio thing, you could have a conversation with me. Um, So it's not even one spectrum. Um, But Usually, when people talk about self-directed learning, so when someone like Peter Gray or myself uh, talk about self-directed learning, we're talking about as much of the locus of control as possible is on the student to control as many aspects of their learning as is possible.
0: So, I was going to spring this question on you toward the end, but I want to I want to bring this up now.
1: Yeah, spring it on because me.
0: Okay. <laughs> because we're talking about sneaky. I like I like the idea of this of it being on a spectrum. Yeah, but I want to kind of try to drill down on how much control does a student actually have? Mm -hmm. So clearly no one thinks that it's a good idea just to put a kid in a blank room and say, Oh, figure out what you want to do in life. Right. And then close the door behind them and they're all alone with nothing. And so an adult is necessarily very active in forming the environment in which the children lives and and operates. Mm -hmm. So even at a quote, self-directed school, there'll be like a playground and like a room with books and a room with games and so on. And so the implicit or explicit message from adults seems to be, okay, you're a self-directed learner quote. And that means you're going to do, you're going to pick from this range of activities. You're going to go play on the playground or read a book or do one of these games or pick one of these projects. Right. And so go ahead and do that. And so in a sense, it's self-directed, but in another sense, the adults are setting the entire context for what the student is confronting or the child is confronting, let's say. Right. And, and you could envision a, a, a school that's, totally different from that in which they are also saying it's self-directed, but there's just many different, there's, there's a whole totally different set of options available to the child. Yeah. So what are your, what is your, what are your thoughts about what is it, you know, in what, in what sense is it self-directed and and how much does an adult properly help to set sort of the environment?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, And that's why I like to think of it as a spectrum and not a binary choice. So it's not self-direction. Or other directed, as you pointed out, even the most self-directed environment is going to have constraints that are not up to the person who supposedly has a locus of control. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I tend to find that the best thing adults can do in terms of helping children direct their learning is provide support and access to things. So it's important, you know, like you said, that you're not plopped into a blank room um, because no one's going to survive and no one's going to function well in that environment. So the better option is to, you know, provide your kids access to a whole bunch of different things, whether it's libraries or museums or, um, you know, books if they want them or, you know, videos or whatever it is provide access and provide support and let your children know like, okay, I'm um, I'm here to help you do whatever it is you want to do, at least that I'm comfortable helping you with. Um, and then that's kind of when you kind of back up and allow the student to, to do what they're going to do. Uh, if, of course, if there, if there comes a point where a, a child is kind of floundering in that environment and doesn't really seem to be doing anything, um, that's when you might, you know, use your discretion and kind of jump in and say, like, okay, what can I help you with? What what do you need? Because it may be that you maybe want more direction, in which case I can help you figure that out. Or um yeah, it, it may be a variety of things. So yeah, I think it's really access, uh, providing access, providing support, and then making sure that the child is growing. Uh, if they're not growing, um, then you step in. Although that's a tough one because Oftentimes we have in our heads what it means to grow. So, um, you know, I often hear things like, well, my child is, you know, is spending a lot of time on their tablet or their, their phone. So they're not really doing anything. Mm -hmm. And my response is kind of like, well, do you know that they're not doing anything? Like, what are they doing on their phone? Oftentimes people don't know. Um, and I actually know an unschooler who does a lot of like creates YouTube videos on his phone. So when he's on his phone, he looks like he's on his phone to any observer. He looks like he's on his phone. Um, but when you actually drill down into what he's doing, he's doing a lot of really interesting and kind of creative stuff on there. So it's, so, you know, when I say you need to make sure your kids are growing, always try to keep in mind, there's a lot of different ways to grow, and if you have a, a particular idea of what that looks like in your head, um, you're going to be more tempted to step in than than might be justified. Well, it
0: seems like there needs to be at least one adult who genuinely has a child's interests in mind, and is and genuinely has a sense of what is interesting to the child. Mm-hmm. So, for example, there's a big difference between, you know, watching educational videos or playing games that have some educational value on a tablet versus just getting sucked into the YouTube hole of watching video after video of, you know, God knows what, I mean, you know, I think there's some really quality content, but I think there's also some junk. Mm -hmm. And so it seems like you're allowing some room for an adult to say, to at least provide some nudges along the lines of, Hey, you know, is this really in your long-term interest to do this or In adult terms, we would say, look, at this point, at some point, just watching videos day, hour after hour, day after day, it starts to look like something like an addiction. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the same time, like my son watched, he was homesick a couple of weeks ago and he watched several hours of this program called Mystery Doug. Mm hmm. And I let him do it because he seemed to be enjoying it and learning things. And then he explained to my wife how Ceres is a dwarf planet in the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter. And I was like, okay, most adults don't know that. So that's kind of interesting.
1: That's the hard thing is that there's, there's a really, really blurry line between the types of videos and, you know, activities that have no learning value at all, which I think is actually smaller than we would give it credit. Uh, and stuff that actually does have some value although it's hidden if you're looking only for school kind of value um i don't know if that that makes sense but you know yeah there's there's a lot of videos that don't contain any math or any history or you know any reading or any science i don't i don't know if that means that they're devoid of learning experiences it really depends on how broadly you want to kind of think about learning experiences. And in my in my own experience within self-directed learning communities, we have a much more elastic view of what could count as a learning experience. We also have uh, a lot of folks kind of have this tolerance for the idea of, I don't really know in advance what my son or daughter is going to learn from. So I will, I will err on the side of letting them do it because I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how it's going to turn out.
0: I guess my default is to think if my kid seems really intrigued and energized by something he's probably getting something important out of it that's right which seems to be different from oh he just seems kind of bored and lethargic but he's just doing something as sort of habituated
1: yeah yeah and you can usually tell the difference
0: okay okay this is i'm this is making me uh very comfortable in terms of, yeah, this kind of resonated with me. So here's a quote from an article from one of your essays, you say, but what if they just waste their time playing video games all day? But what if they really don't know what is best for themselves? But What if they just do stuff that is easy and never challenge themselves? And so maybe you could just say a few more. I mean, this is what we've been talking about, but yeah, what, do you, what are your usual yeah. answers to parents who bring you these objections?
1: Hearing you read that brings a tear to my eye, Ari. It's it's it never fails to move me. Um, well, so that that particular article is called "What if they just dot 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 question mark?" And I wrote that article um, after talking to a very you know well meaning colleague in the lunchroom when we were talking about like self directed learning. And these were kind of the standard kind of questions, and parents have them all the time, and um, you know they're understandable because we're used to seeing kids in school. So one of the things I write in that article and one of the things I I like to say to parents is watching kids in school and watching kids who are growing up going to school for most of the day and then thinking that the behavior that we see with those kids at school is like just part of kids is, is, is really artificial. It's, it's like, um, uh, the writer Carol Black likes to say, it's like watching, uh, uh, it's like, it's like watching, um, was it, um, like sea world animals and thinking that the behavior at sea world is just part of the animal and not animal plus sea world. So it's almost like we, I think we're afraid of kind of what kids will do with freedom because they are so often in a place where they have no freedom. And if you're in a place every day where you have no freedom, um, you're, whenever you do get freedom, you're going to go wild with it, right? Like if you imagine being on a restrictive diet where you can only eat so many calories and you can only eat like vegetables and, and like, it's just, it's really hard and your will, your willpower gets depleted. And at some point, let's say nobody's checking up on you and, and your diet and you binge because you're so hungry and you're so, uh, you, you don't want to be restricted anymore. It would be a mistake to say, see, that's why people need to be on restricted diets because they'll just, they'll, they'll just binge all day if, if they're not because part of the, the reason you binged was because you were on the restrictive diet. So it's, I like to kind of say unschooling is like taking them off of a restrictive diet. Maybe the reason they act up in school is because they're treated so, uh, so harshly. And maybe that's not how they would actually be in an environment where they had more freedom.
0: Okay. But it's kind of scary because you're saying that parents, let's say a kid is feels like they're in a very restrictive environment. You're saying that if they a parent takes a child out of that environment, there might be a stage where an adjustment period, <laughs>
1: right, right.
0: <laughs> and a parent will have to kind of work through that.
1: That's right, and there often is. Okay. Uh, I've I've talked to folks who are who work at uh, learning centers like Sudbury schools or Agile Learning Centers, which are kind of unschooling collectives that don't usually have formal curriculum and stuff like that. And one of the things they often say is that they can tell uh, how long a student is going to quote unquote, sit and do nothing based on the history of how long they've been in a conventional school. So if a kid comes to them really young and they've only been in a conventional school for a year, they're like, oh yeah, they're going to come here and they're going to start doing stuff like right away. It it won't phase them. If they come here after eight years of conventional school, or nine years, or ten years, the amount of adjustment, what they often call detox—that's uh, not my term; that's their term—is um, longer, because it, they're, they're, you you acclimate to this strange school environment, and you have to deacclimate, which in itself is kind of a, a strange phenomenon. But I've heard the I've heard the same thing from these folks over and over and over again. Hmm.
0: So just. To give us a sense, after the eight-year time, what what are they typically looking for in terms of how long they're going to have to sort of help help this child readjust?
1: Um, I don't. I I know a few of them have kind of like tried to create some like unofficial formula. It's something like each year we'll add a few months or something like that to the amount of time that they kind of need to just sit and just kind of you know like decompress a bit. Uh, I, I don't know exactly what, I, I don't remember exactly what the formulas were, but it's usually like every year is like two months or something like that.
0: And I'm sure it varies a lot by child and probably, yeah, whether they probably just doesn't. felt, whether they just felt bored or whether they're being bullied and really had a hard time with some of the teachers, I guess all those things would.
1: Yeah. I, I'm i sure, I'm sure if I was placed into a school like that when I was 15, 16, you know, right when I was about to you know drop out, I'm pretty sure I would have not, sat for a, a long time. I'm pretty sure I would have just jumped in. Um, but other kids I could imagine. Um, yeah, other kids probably would take them longer.
0: Okay. So here's something controversial you wrote a couple of years ago. So this is from an article from fee foundation for economic education. You think and the the title things is... I write are
1: controversial? Shoot. I, I don't think anything <laughs> I write is controversial,
0: <laughs> Well, some people will. <laughs> here's the title, and uh, some listeners can judge. Kids don't need sure. to be well-rounded. They need to be passionate. Yeah. And here's a quote from that. We need to get rid of the idea that all kids need to learn the same stuff in schools. I think a corollary is getting rid of the idea that kids need to be well-rounded, which is one of the reasons why we have so much standardized curriculum. So walk us
1: through your thinking on this point so first of all, I should say that, um, passionate was an editorial choice. I think I had originally said they need to be agile. Um, but since that's kind of a word that doesn't have a lot of parlance, uh, I think passionate was kind of put in there. It's not quite perfectly what I wanted to say, but, um, and that's necessary to kind of understand my position. So, my position is, 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 well, there's a few facets to it. The first one is that when you look around the world, um, and especially if, if you have a particularly libertarian audience, they'll probably understand this point pretty well, is kind of you look around in the economy and things like that, and there's a division of labor. And you know, ever since Adam Smith, we've realized that markets don't function because we all have the same skills. They function because we all have different skills and we can network with each other. So we can network each other's skills together. So there's certain things, uh, repairing certain things in my house, for instance, that I absolutely cannot do. Uh, I could maybe learn them, but I would do a horrible job at them. And it's actually way easier for me to pay somebody to do them. And then the people that I pay, they may not be able to do like college classes or something like that. And I happen to be okay at it. So they can pay the university who pays me. So even when I look in my office, I mean, we all we don't all know the same skills. I have certain skills that my colleagues don't. My colleagues have certain skills that I don't. So if you just look at kind of e- economically, um, we we don't function because we have the same set of skills. And if we have the same set of skills, um, it, it might actually be worse off for everyone. So the second part is that there's a line of thought in a few different fields, uh, cognitive science, people like um, Steve Sloman, Philip Fernbach. That basically says that humans—the secret to our success—is not that we are individually intelligent, although we are pretty individually intelligent. It's the fact that we can network our knowledge together in really creative ways. Um, we have language. Language alone has has served as a networking function. So I can ask you about certain things. You can ask me about certain things. And of course, now we have technologies. We have uh, books. We have you know books became the internet you know, stuff like that. So we, so we're a pretty networked species and it's getting a lot easier to learn things on demand in a certain way. So it used to be maybe in the 1950s, even, I mean, we networked with books and things, but it used to be if you, you know, if you wanted to know something and you didn't know it, you had limited options, right? So you could maybe go to the library and see if there's a book on it. If you know someone who knows it, you could ask them. There's a few other ways to know something, but you know, in the 1950s, maybe it made sense to say, okay, you need to know a certain amount of of math or history in advance because if you get to a point where you don't know it and you really need to know it, there's very few options for you in terms of how to remedy those gaps. Um, With our increasingly networked age, and it's it's getting more equitable in terms of access to these network technologies, um, that's becoming less and less obvious. It's becoming less and less obvious that I need to know when the French revolution took place because if I did need to know that um, I can look it up or it becomes a lot less obvious that we need to know certain math functions because there are websites and tutorials and stuff where I can either plug in factors and get an equation and get an outcome or I can figure out how to learn those things when I need to learn them. So I think if there was a rationale for school, it was in an age where we weren't as networked as we are today, and I think we're going to see that the more and more we are networked, the more and more you know gaps in your knowledge just don't—they're not as consequential as they were, and everyone's just going to have different gaps in their knowledge. So, so yeah, I, I don't—I don't think that people need to necessarily know the same things, uh, and that's interesting because ten years ago I completely disagreed with my position. Today, I was really convinced by people like Edie Hirsch, who said we all need to be on the same page as a culture. We all have to have this common body of knowledge. Um, I guess I've grown a lot more to think of culture as this kind of pluralistic thing where everyone its kind of like, you know, you have certain things in common with different people, but you don't have certain things in common with other people. And it's more pluralistic than that. And I've, I've kind of convinced myself out of that the position that we all need to be on the same page in order to function.
0: Well, by luck, I happen to write down a quote by Edie Hirsch. Oh yeah, so, and so the general pushback is, well, okay, let's grant that we need individualized knowledge and individualized interest, but isn't there still some important room for shared knowledge? So here's something from Hirsch's book what your kindergartner needs to know. And I'm sure he makes comparable comments.
1: Commit it to the flames, Ari. Commit it to the flames.
0: <laughs> well, I'm, I'm going to read it before we get that far um, and then have you just, uh, just respond to his line of thinking. So here's what he writes. Language and vocabulary, like critical thinking and problem solving, also depend a great deal on a broad base of shared knowledge. When a sportscaster describes a surprising performance by an underdog basketball team as a Cinderella story, The assumption is that their audience will know and understand the reference. The idea that there is a common body of knowledge that all children should know to enable them to read, communicate, and work cooperatively with with others does sound old-fashioned, but the overwhelming evidence argues that this is precisely the case. So you've already addressed that in, in general, but do you have any specific comments about what he's saying?
1: yeah, and it's interesting because again, ten years ago, I was on the opposite side of what I'll be arguing right now, and I was on Hirsch's side. Um, but the more I thought about it, the more I think Hirsch gets several things wrong about how culture works. So, first of all is what I had mentioned. So if someone hears in passing that that a basketball team's victory was a Cinderella story, there's a few different options. Number one, you can ask people around you what what they mean by that, and maybe they'll know. You can look it up online if you don't want to ask your friends. Um, Or you could just kind of piece together the context clues. Okay, wow, it was a really great come from behind victory. Nobody thought they were going to win. I guess that's what it means. Um, Those are three of several options that you have that I think Hirsch doesn't really um, take into serious consideration. So the second thing that Hirsch, I think, underestimates is that he paints a false dichotomy in a lot of his works between um, we either – know completely different things or we're all forced to learn the same thing, then that there's no middle ground there. But there is a middle ground because my son knows a fairly conventional standard English, he knows a lot of, you know, he knows what a vampire is, he knows all these things. That's kind of a shared body of knowledge he has and yet he wasn't forced to learn those things. The fact that it's common, knowledge itself should mean that you will pick it up in the course of living a common life. So no one forced him to learn what vampires are. He picked it up from watching TV shows and stuff like that and hearing people talk about vampires when it's close to Halloween. Um, So I think that Edie Hirsch sees these common cultural things as something that needs to be forced on people. When I almost see it the other way around, um, the fact that it is common knowledge itself should mean that people will pick it up in due course. And if they don't pick it up, and they do need to be forced, then you really have to wonder how, how common that knowledge is. If I can go through years of my life without learning what a Cinderella story is, that seems to me like it's a pretty strong argument in favor of the idea of Cinderella as a cultural reference not being common knowledge. Um, so I guess he's trying to force it to be common knowledge, but the question is, if it really is common, why, why do you need to force it? It seems like a contradiction there's a third problem that I think Hirsch has, which is that, again, he sees culture as this really static property, this really static thing, that the only way culture works is everyone knows what a Cinderella story is. Uh, Somehow culture can't work if we don't share certain things in common with everybody. And I guess the way I see culture is a lot more pluralistically. There are certain things that maybe we'll all learn in common that because they truly are common. Like I said before, we don't need to force those things. There are other things that may not be common to everyone, but a lot of people will know. And there may be other things that is are much more diverse. So for every Cinderella story reference that Hirsch can come up with, I can come up with another reference of another thing that an author might reference that we could argue is common knowledge. And we, we could generate a list of, of tens of thousands of things you could run across and we could all um, use a Hershey, argument to say, well, that someone might write that. And if you, if, if they write that, we all need to understand it. So that's common knowledge. I mean, we would come up with uh, a really lengthy curriculum that way. That's a great point. And implicit in what you're saying
0: seems to be the idea that there's a certain elitism in Hershey's approach, like, oh, it's common knowledge, but we're the ones who decide what is the real common knowledge that you really need to know. And all this other stuff, we're just going to kind of ignore.
1: Well, I, I, I didn't watch Game of Thrones. I'm one of the few people who who didn't watch Game of Thrones. But one of the things I did notice is that because it's kind of a historical thing and it references historical categories, weapons and, and, and terms and things like that, um, people were watching the show. And learning a lot of things that you could have argued should have been common knowledge, but somehow it didn't prevent people from watching the show and from Game of Thrones from becoming a hit show. And I honestly, I think with with just a little bit of sarcasm that if Edie Hirsch saw that phenomenon, he would have been mystified by it. Well, and it's sort of interesting
0: that that some of these shows sort of compel people to look back at some of the history. And like Harry Potter, people would look up what the references mean. Yes, and, yes. And yes. Uh, I was even looking the other day, there's this... Video on YouTube. It has like two million hits, explaining how uh, the Jedi Force in Star Wars has something to do with Buddhist philosophy, and mm, and right. so I guess maybe you could look at it as these pop these newer pop works are sort of in so far as they are referencing other works are encouraging people to go look that up on their own, and they're perfectly usually able to do that.
1: Yeah. They, well, this is the other thing that's really interesting is that you know school curriculum is premised on the idea that you can know 12 years out what people are going to need to know once they graduate. That, you know, like now we could know, you know, what people are going to need to know in 12 years. Um, And that's especially with a really quite rapidly changing world. uh, I I, I don't think that's tenable anymore. Well, this is of direct
0: importance to me because most of the charter schools in my area are explicitly core knowledge based. And that's Edie Hirsch's child and Ah, and in in fact they have they have they actually have a lot of good material they have i have something like 65 books that i've downloaded for free for their site so it's a good resource for parents yeah um but i'm not sure you know but i i question whether that's the right way to develop a school curriculum
1: yeah i i've i've looked at some of ed hirsch's works about like you know what every third grader should know and things like that and i'm I get puzzled when I come across certain things like uh, I don't even remember some of them. But, you know, if you take any historical fact that every third grader allegedly is supposed to know, uh, I just I would love to ask people who learned those things. Did you use that after school? Did that was that valuable to you? I like to think of a Venn diagram of all of the things that you learned in school particularly all of the, the things that school was convinced that you would need in the future, and then all of the, the things, all of the piece of knowledge you've used over the past 10 years, how much overlap would there be between those two circles? And I don't think I've had many people say over 30%. Most people hover around the 20s.
0: Okay. I think that's pretty persuasive to me. Now we can distinguish sort of specific knowledge from more general knowledge, like General knowledge of the scientific method or knowledge of math, but so yeah. we can bracket that out for for later. But that's that's very compelling to me: the idea that specific sorts of cultural knowledge you'll either get outside of school or it may not be that important to begin with. Right. Um, let's move to a different article, a more recent article you wrote, and it's about the brain. As <laughs> you say, the brain is a learning and forgetting machine. And here's a here's a line from that research demonstrates that we remember that we remember only a tiny amount of what we are taught in school. Research also demonstrates that we remember better when we learn out of interest. So what is just summarize some of this research for us and explain what this means for a self-directed learning approach?
1: Sure. Um a good amount of the research for those who want to follow up on it is um compiled in Philip Fernbach and Steve Sloman's book The Knowledge Illusion: Why We Never Think Alone. Um so the research is so, uh, there's several lines of research so Sloman and Fernbach are cognitive scientists and some of the cognitive science research basically argues or, or shows that one of the reasons that humans um can remember so much paradoxically is because we know what to remember and we know what to forget. Um, we learn main ideas, we learn where to access information and we forget the rest. As soon as we feel like we have access to something, we usually forget whatever that something is because we know that we can access it later. And the brain kind of does this subconsciously. Um, If you think about, you know, stuff that you learned in history class in middle school and high school, you might remember the core ideas, but you probably don't remember a lot of the details. And uh, in some sense, the argument is that's deliberate on the part of your brain, that your brain just knows kind of how to do do that stuff um, there's other research in the field of education where they've done such things as they've gone into classrooms uh, and basically given the same test or a very similar test to people a year after they took their final exams and predictably the amount that you retain even if even those people who scored very well on their first final exams um, remember very little bit, a year later so those are kind of two lines of of the research and i think i say in the article that this is the kind of research that i feel like kind of just verifies what most people i think intuitively kind of know about themselves we're just not very good at remembering large large amounts of details
0: well i guess one point of pushback is to say well that's probably true but if you find that you need to go back and actually know something in more detail it's a it's a lot easier the second time to go through and kind of piece that back together than it is to learn it the first time so maybe we have sort of like we build up this well of ability to piece together important information when we need it even though it wouldn't be reflected on a test because it's not immediately ready ready available yeah but if i if i look at a book or something like i could i could if i read a book once and it's hard then a year later i'll probably forget most of it but i can go back and put all those pieces back together very quickly.
1: Yeah, I think that's I think that's probably right. But I don't think that's an argument, let's say, against self-directed education, because if that's true for things you learn in school, that's true for things you learn outside of school as well. So it's as true for the video editing software that you do extracurricularly as it is for the history that you've learned in school.
0: Okay. And then the other bit of pushback, which some of my friends would make, is that well, of course, if your if your baseline is a boring class in school, which the students are not interested in at all, you're, they're not going to remember it. Right. But if you have a good teacher who is motivating the students and the students are excited, then they're a lot more likely to remember. So um, I guess to me the 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 real the interesting debate is not between sort of standard school, which I would think is pretty poor Mm -hmm. but between sort of the best possible um i hate to say traditional let's say teacher directed learning experience versus self-directed so yeah um i guess we can
1: yeah no No, i can work that in later as we go go ahead well i i think that's right and um you know i'm i'm not against school for sure um you know i work in a college of education i teach future educators i wouldn't i wouldn't do that if i if I didn't believe that schools could make, you know, at very least marginal improvements, and there are definitely classrooms where people learn a lot more, teachers make it more interesting, they're, they're better kind of at, at salesmanship of here's why this is an interesting thing, they're better at packaging lessons. I, I would just say that conventional schools tend to have constraints placed on them that constrain teachers' ability to make those things as engaging as they want. Uh, Extraordinary teachers for sure can do it. Um, But, you know, things like just basic curricular things. Um, Every study I've ever seen on interest and and learning outcomes shows a positive relationship. The more a student is interested in what they're doing, the more they're going to do it, or the the more their learning outcomes are going to, Uh, be better. They're going to be, they're going to retain it longer. They're going to retain more of it. They're, they're going to push through challenges and stuff like that. So the problem with conventional schooling is that, you know, curriculum is fairly set in stone. So teachers are very limited in the amount of freedom, let's say they can give students to choose what they're going to do. So one of the common refrains that we hear in education a lot is, you know, for teachers is to, you know, tailor your lessons to your students' interests. And I'm definitely not against that idea, but I also think that that schools make it really challenging to do that. You have 30 students in a single class, and you have to teach multiple, multiplying fractions on Wednesday for 30 students. So it's really unrealistic to expect that teachers are going to be able to mold a single lesson on multiplying fractions to every student's interests. Uh, First of all, people's interests change. So what a student's interest was two months ago is not the same necessarily as what it is now. Um, You have 30 of them and that's just one class. Uh, And not everyone's going to have interests that intersect with multiplying fractions or pick whatever it is that they're learning about. So I think that, you know, obviously schools can do better and worse jobs at things like that. And I would say that um, the better teachers are and the better schools are, the, the better kids are. Uh, but yeah, I think realistically, schools make it very hard to to do a lot of those things. Where I think unschooling environments and environments that are similar, self-directed learning environments, take a lot of those constraints off. They remove a lot of the constraints and they allow you know people to control their learning in a way that that almost guarantees that they're going to do engaging things.
0: Well, I do think that a lot of teachers in regular schools feel a fair amount of pressure to teach to the standardized tests because they're judged on their performance. That is the basis of their performance reviews. Yeah. And that may be, that may not correlate very well to what the students are learning in terms of what's meaningful or if the students, you know, like are the students enjoying themselves Well that? Who cares?
1: (laughs) Can they take this test or not? Or the opposite is, is, um, in some ways the the hidden downside of the message is that if the kids are not engaged it is your fault as a teacher you need to make it more exciting and the teachers are like look i'm i'm doing what i can with what i have i am trying to make it exciting i don't know any teachers who just go in and don't try to make the lesson engaging teachers are trying as best as they can it's just yeah they have to teach to a certain paced curriculum which really limits the amount like if a kid isn't into multiplying fractions on Wednesday, tough. That's just what we have to do. Uh, You know, the teacher doesn't like it, but they have to do it. So uh, for math, I'm convinced that for math,
0: group instruction is often not very helpful anyway. So, and I think, I think something like hyper-individualized approaches like kids going through Khan Academy or something might work a lot better, at least for some students. Mm -hmm. But for a lot of things, a lot of things seem to be inherently group oriented like certain art classes, or mm-hmm. even certain history or science classes. Um, so at a certain point, I mean, it's not just like you walk into a building and you can take any class you want at any time um, on any subject because it just doesn't work. Right. I mean, there's just not enough people to do that. I mean, and so the fact is that any given student and parent, you have a certain number of classes that are available, and so it's kind of binary. You can take this class now or not. So, you know, like my, my kid is in dance class. Right. This is um, just through the local community center. And so, you know, I wanted to get his input mm-hmm. and he seemed to want to do dance. So we did dance, but on a given day, there's, there's a motivational issue. Cause on a given day, he might say, I don't want to go to dance class. I'm like, Hey, we're signed up and you agreed to go to dance class. We paid for it. So let's go to dance class. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, but the other thing is it's like, you know, it's not like th- there's one kind of dance class and is and a given student may not be as interested on a given day. And this is the case not just for dance, but for any any kind of class. So, yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm just trying to work myself around the point that, that at some point, you know, you just have to decide we're going to do this this course or this class or engage in this process. Even if you're in a quote self directed learning school, right? Right. You're going to have to go to the teacher and yeah. say, "Hey, we want to read this book."
1: But then you're kind of committing to that. Yeah. Yeah. Um so Daniel Greenberg who is the founder of Sudbury Valley. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that school in Framingham Massachusetts. It's it's essentially kind of an unschooling collective uh where it's kids go and they do what they want with their time. There's no grades, there's no tests, there's no courses. Stuff like I, that. I am the, familiar the, because I actually
0: yeah. I actually know a guy who started a Sudbury in Colorado. Okay. I think it's called cool. Alpine Valley. Yeah, Alpine Valley. Yeah. Track.
1: Yep. Yep. That's so, right. yeah, I'm, I'm somewhat familiar with that. I yeah, haven't been so, down there
0: for years, so go so ahead.
1: You'll, you'll notice that, um, so he tells this story, and a lot of Sudbury schools do this, and a lot of agile learning communities do this, um, where they will have classes if students want those classes. So if enough students say, hey, I want to learn this, does anyone want to learn it with me? And everyone says, yeah. And then maybe a staff member's like, cool, I can lead the group or whatever. Um, you do that, but... The understanding there is always we're going to do this, and if you don't show up at this time, this these dates, we'll just dissolve the group or or whatever. let like you set the terms, um, or I mean, so you know, some classes will be like, okay, if you want to miss, that's on you. Um, but you said you wanted to do this, so we're going to have class, and if you are not here, okay, but that's that's on you. Um, So it's not, you know, so they definitely have classes and there's definitely kind of a sense that you get, like like you said, if someone signs up for a dance class, even if it's self-directed and they came to it voluntarily, you know, you're committing your time a certain amount each week or whatever showing up this time uh, on this date to do this thing with this teacher. Um, You know, you either follow through on the commitment or you dissolve it. it. So it's 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 it would be similar as it was in a school. The only difference is the child asked for the dance class. Whereas in school, usually the child had the dance class kind of compelled on them. Right. Well, that makes a lot of
0: sense to me. I guess the broader point here is that it's something that we have to learn. The idea that, you know, some things are a lot of work before you get the payoff. So like violin lessons, every kid when they start violin sounds like a screeching cat. And it just isn't very fun at first. And it takes a while before you even... Know enough about it to really develop an interest or like skiing. Yeah. Or like the first day of skiing for everyone is awful, so you kind of right. have to work through that and look to the second day and the second week of skiing. Yeah. Um. So I guess the the I guess the question there is, at a certain point, you know, how do we make sure that a quote self directed student is learning these lessons that certain long term payoffs take a lot of work and aren't necessarily fun up front?
1: Yeah. Uh, okay, so there's two parts to the answer that I'll give to that. The first one goes back to the what if they just dot, dot, dot article. Um, the point that I made there was kind of like oftentimes when we see kids give up really easily in frustration, it's usually with some sort of school kind of task. And then we kind of take that and we say, oh, that's because st- children are just that way. They won't do work. They won't you know realize long-term payoffs. They're short-term thinkers and stuff like that. And my tendency is to say, well, what if it's the kid plus school? is like that. What if, what if school is, you know, they're not persevering in school tasks because, well, there's no real incentive to do it other than maybe a grade and maybe they don't care about that. Um, but the other, that leads into the other part of the, the answer that I'll give. I've, I've talked to a lot of unschoolers and I've read a lot of accounts of people who learn outside of school environments. And uh, I know this is, you know, a collection of anecdotes, but in all of these cases, these kids find something or many things that they develop passions for. And once you develop a passion for something, you want to get better at it. You want to do more. Um, The more you're interested and engaged and passionate about something, the more likely you are to persevere through challenges. I'm pretty sure your listeners can think of hard things they do that they don't really have to do. They just kind of want to do. So it it could be, um, you know, reading really complicated, like classic novels, or it could be, you know, I, I play, you know, uh, you know, for like, uh, you know, like Frisbee golf or something. And I want to get better at that or whatever it is. So uh, I'll, I'll take this opportunity to plug up a, a podcast that my colleague, Gina Riley and I are, are working on launching called learning by living, where we actually talk to people who learned outside of conventional school environments about how they learned and about kind of how they spent their time if they didn't go to school. And today we just interviewed our first guest uh, who is a professional classical guitar player and he never went to school until college and he found guitar and i think he said the 7th grade or like 7th gradish area if you were to put grades on it and he loved it so much that he just kept practicing and practicing and practicing uh he got a formal teacher because he wanted to advance himself he ended up going to a berkeley college of music um summer program and then you know getting like an undergraduate degree in 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 uh you know music and, and it just kind of illustrates the point that, you know, learning guitar to a professional level, especially classical guitar, is not an easy task. Uh, and no one made him do it. He, no one said, you have to do this. But he did it. And he did it because he was passionate about it and he wanted to do it. So I guess my response is is oftentimes when you see people not persevering through challenges and thinking short term and kind of giving up and not developing that what we call a growth mindset. Um, it's often because they're not passionate about the particular thing. And if they are passionate about it, you'll see that they will kind of be willing to persevere through challenges um, in a pretty astounding way. Okay. Yeah, that rings
0: true. Now, some careers, like let's take a doctor, like a medical doctor or a scientist. So these are the kinds of careers that require quite a specific and yet um, very wide and broad base of knowledge. I mean, you, you really do have to know quite a lot of science, especially anatomy, to go into being a medical doctor. And it really does take a lot of years of very intensive study. And so, at a certain point, I mean, I'm wondering, I guess the question that I'm trying to work on is at some point, does the self-directed approach kind of merge into the traditional school approach? Because at some point, a kid who wants to become a doctor might decide, look, I really need to take a lot of math in high school. I really need to take all the science courses, chemistry, physics, and so on, anatomy, so that I can provide myself with a background for this. And so do you, can you envision a case where there's a student who is basically doing what we think of, uh, oh, what's the term when the, with the super controlling parents? They're basically behaving as though that's who their parents were, but they're doing it more because they understand that they actually want to be a doctor someday.
1: Yeah, and that that happens. Um, it's not, I wouldn't say it's common, but it's not uncommon for someone in a self-directed learning environment to choose formal classes at some point, um, especially when they find something they really want to do. So the, the person we interviewed today for the podcast um, decided at some point, I need professional lessons and decided even at a further point, I need to do a certificate program in a formal institution because that's the way to kind of take me further. Um, so, you know, self-directed education, it's its a misleading term in the sense that it sounds like, like the learner is just kind of doing everything themselves. And really what it's about is the learner is doing things voluntarily. So I don't think self-directed learning is incompatible with formal schooling as long as the formal schooling is chosen. And as long as the learner realizes that I can choose out of this if it doesn't serve... My purpose is. But you'll definitely find, you know, and there are def- definitely stories of folks who, you know, are self directed learners. And at some point, they're like, you know what? I want to go to school. And some people go to school and then they, after a while, say, yeah, it's probably not worth the trade off. But then other folks are like, yeah, I, I enjoy this. I enjoy kind of the structure of it. I enjoy the teacher kind of directing my experience. And, you know, I'm fine with that. And I think most self directed learning advocates are fine with that. In fact, I, you know, I, I really wish that formal schooling was much more voluntary it would be much better if if kids who were in a class were there because they wanted to be there and they know that i can choose out if this doesn't fit me or if this doesn't serve my purposes so yeah it's definitely not incompatible with school and there is definitely a merger uh, at some point self-directed learners tend to to decide that there's value in formal education i guess the only other thing that i'll say about that though is that um oftentimes unschoolers and self-directed learners will report that a lot of the value of formal education is in the kind of credentialing and the credibility that it gives them so again to go back to the podcast we recorded earlier today for learning by living um you know the guest was quite open about you know one of the reasons i went to college and studied music in college Uh, was that I wanted to get some sort of credibility. Like, I want something I I can hand to someone and say, you know, I've been certified in this. Um, That wasn't the only reason he went, but it was actually a larger reason than I think most people would want to admit uh, and in fact, that's in line with a fair amount of evidence, including uh, the economist Brian Kaplan's latest book, The Case Against Education, where he finds that, you know, about I think he estimates about 80 percent of the uh, the value of a college degree is in the degree and certification itself, not in the education that the degree actually certifies. And this gets to
0: uh, some, some of this has to do with occupational licensing. So to become a medical doctor it's not enough to know the material you have to get the license to practice medicine. Um, and certainly if you're going into graduate, if you want to be a research scientist and get your PhD, there's credentialing required at various points on that
1: path. Yeah. Um, Um, I'm, I'm in a teacher education program and of course, you know, teacher education functions the same way unless you want to teach at a private school, which is, you know, I think roughly 5% of the market. Um, you need to be certified, and that's a
0: obviously that's a whole different problem.
1: Yeah, I mean, my so my philosophy on this is a little bit um, kind of complicated, maybe a little bit pessimistic for people. I, unlike some self-directed learning advocates, I have no problem with certification in terms of like you know learning institutions being kind of about credentials, uh, because I think it solves a, val- a valid problem what what economists would call the information cost problem, like. If I want to shop around for doctors, one way to make sure that doctors are of a certain quality is to look at their certification. And certification can be wrong, but it's better than not having a certification system. Um, you know, maybe the same with teachers. But what I would say is that there's an educational function of school and a certification function of school. And they're not incompatible, but they get in the way of each other. Because when you go to school and your goal is to get a certificate, you will see learning as the grudging obstacle that you have to put up with in order to get that certificate. So if the goal of education or the goal of schooling is to learn, uh, I I would argue that the credentialing function, as valid as it is, kind of crowds out the learning and it really gets students much more focused on the credential, which goes back to what you are talking about earlier about school being in some ways kind of a game. And the certificate is like the reward. Well, that's
0: obviously a much bigger problem kind of beyond the scope of what we're talking about in terms of parents, but yeah, I mean, ideally you would have a credentialing system that actually reflects relevant knowledge that the student is learning for a particular career path. Unfortunately, it seems like a lot of credentialing is about jumping through hoops. <laughs> and then after you get your credential, then you learn how really to really to work in the profession.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not convinced that you can do that. I'm not convinced that credentialing and learning won't get in the way of each other at some point. Because I've I've talked to people, I have friends who are are going through med school or who are recently graduated med school. Um, And I know from experience working with teachers who get their degree and then go into the system. Most of what they learn in school, they learn because they have to demonstrate it for the credential. And they learn it in a way where like I'm doing this because I have to get the credential. And you kind of promptly forget most of it. Um. So even, you know, doctors are like, yeah, I, I learned stuff in, in school and I passed the credentialing test. I don't know how to do it anymore. Uh, I did that for the credential. Um, and these are, you know, presumably pretty good students. And I know teachers kind of often tell the same story. Like there's the things you have to do for your credential and then you get the credential and just get that out of the way. And then you actually learn on the job. Well, let's,
0: yeah. And that's, that's a tough problem. But I, I guess at least if the student is sort of aware of his or her goals, and how a particular program fits in with those, at least he'll be motivated to treat it as it is. I mean, at least there's a, poss- a better possibility the student will consciously separate out, well, here here's the stuff that's actually useful for my long-term career path. Here's the hurdles I have to jump through in order to get there. And they'll presumably be better at doing both if they are a little bit more aware of that
1: yeah, this is what this is what self-directed learners talk about a lot. And again, I've talked to a lot of them. I've read a lot of accounts written by them. Um, and they say that one thing that self-directed learning really prepared them for, which was just a hugely valuable life skill, is in some sense, learning how to plan out what you need to do to get a goal. So you know, these are kids who grow up without a school structure telling you, here's the path you need to take these kids are the ones who grow up and say, I need to figure out for myself what path I need to take. And they get very used to doing that. So when you hear about unschoolers and self-directed learners, let's say attending college, and all the data that I've seen indicates that they attend college at at least the same rate as the general population, uh, which is remarkable considering that they don't have that transcript of K-12. The reason they're able to do that is because they can plan out what they need to do to show a particular university that their college material, even if they don't have a transcript. Uh, so they're like, hey, I called the dean. I, I just called the dean of the institution because I wanted to sit down and like plan out what I need to do to to show them. So, okay, so I need to take the SAT, great. What do I need to do now to figure out how to do that? Cool, I'll get some books. Um, I'll learn this chapter this week and then maybe go into the next chapter. They're really good at budgeting and figuring out what they need to do to get a particular goal. And I think it's precisely because they didn't exist in a school environment that every day told them, here's the next step. Here's the next step. Here's the next step. The part of it that really
0: appeals to me is a student developing their own ability to plan their own lives and decide what's important to them. And then come up with a plan to achieve what's important to them. That's the part of what you're preaching that really appeals to me in a big way. Um, There's, Here's a, a practical question on this point. Are you finding that colleges are open to this sort of alternative learning systems that the kids are coming to them with?
1: Yeah, I can't really speak too much of that. I mean, the institution that I'm in, um, I don't really know quite as, uh, too much about their kind of admissions policies with regard to that. But I do know that self-directed learning, both in its unschooling form and even just homeschooling generally... And also, you know, going to schools like Sudbury Valley or Agile Learning Centers that don't have transcripts and things like that, those are becoming more popular options. And as they become more popular options, colleges have to figure out a way to accommodate them. And from my experience, and and the people I've talked to, colleges are doing a pretty good job at accommodating them. Um, you know, often what they they will have to do. And it really depends on the state law also. Um, What they'll often have to do is they'll have to develop a portfolio of things that they've done that are kind of equivalent to like high school classes. So instead of passing certain tests, they have to demonstrate that they have certain competencies in certain areas. So you'll kind of create a portfolio. Um, I I think there are also schools and services that 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 are popping up that help homeschoolers and unschoolers and folks design a portfolio that translates the experiences they've had outside of school into like school credits as artificial as that sounds um you know that's kind of a market that's also coming up so i think colleges are becoming a bit more receptive to figuring out how to um take these students okay
0: i wanted to drop back to another one of the articles you wrote and you talk about how schools treat things like math and science as a quote subject of study as opposed to a skill or a way of thinking and the title of this article, I'll drop it in the show notes is ways of thinking, not school subjects. So give us an idea of the problem that you see and what you think is the right way to think about these, these subjects.
1: Yeah. So one of the things that I notice both as, um, talking to people in unschooling spaces and trying to convince people who are skeptical, um, is that when people ask things like, well, how do they learn math? that one's pretty a fairly easy sell. I don't want to say easy, but it's easier because you can say well, okay, what are the ways that you use math? And then we can usually get a list. And I'll say, well, okay, but you know, what about kids? How much time do you think they're going to take before they want to use money or before they need to measure something or before they want to try to cook something or or whatever it is. So it's usually pretty easy. People say, "Oh yeah, okay, I can see how they would learn math just by practical application." um the harder ones the one of the reasons i wrote the article was history i often hear history and science a lot so how are they going to learn science how are they going to learn history and what i try to tell people is okay i try to do the same thing like okay like history is kind of all around us it's it's your child at some point is going to get to a point where they're fascinated enough by something that they want to know the historical story the backstory of how it came to be the way it is that is history and what I've realized is that when I give that answer, people often look at me as if like, well, that's not what I mean. I don't mean history as in like the ability to tell a historical story. I mean, the stuff you learn in history classes. Like, I mean, like US history. I mean, like the the history of Europe. I mean, stuff like that. And in all honesty, my answer to that is I, I can't guarantee that your child will know those things but you're thinking of history as a subject rather than as a way of thinking and in theory the reason we teach history and science is not so that people come out with a whole lot of facts it's so that they can think historically create and like evaluate historical stories or they can think scientifically so they can the way that a scientist would critically think and that doesn't necessarily involve contra Edie hirsch's objections knowing what the cell organelles are. There's nothing about, you know, thinking scientifically that requires that you know about cell organelles or how to balance a chemical equation, et cetera. So I guess that's what I mean when I say we should probably be thinking of history and science and math less as subjects and more as ways of thinking. Okay. So as I indicated earlier,
0: I've, also been influenced by people like Leonard Peikoff and the people who are inspired or influenced by Ayn Rand's ideas. And their general view on education is something like as follows. The goal of education is to help children develop their conceptual capacities with an with the eye toward their personal values. So it shares a lot with the approach that you are that you are advocating in the sense that it's oriented around the child's values. But I think objectivists are a lot more eager to say that a real education is content rich. And there are certain things that children need to learn to be successful in life. And so in that respect, they're a little bit more like the core knowledge Hirsch approach. But I just wanted to read you. So I don't know how familiar you are with this, but there's a documentary about a school out in California called the Van Damme Academy. And, and Lisa Van Dam actually taught Leonard Peikoff's daughter long ago and some other students of people she knew back in the day, years ago. And then this was sort of the kernel out of which the Van Dam Academy grew. But I just wanted to read to you a line from one of her essays and then have you respond. So the idea is maybe the problem, maybe children can learn Maybe there can be a curriculum with a content-rich education, but the goal is for there to be good teaching and for the teachers to actually motivate the students by emphasizing how this material is relevant to their lives. So anyway, here, and then I just, I'm I'm trying to, I'm trying to shoot for a compare contrast between that view and, and the, in your view. So here's something from Van, something Van Am wrote, my sixth and seventh grade students can describe the essentials of the whole history of Western civilization they have read over 40 plays and novels from Sophocles to Shakespeare to Victor Hugo. They write with clarity and intelligence. They know the history of physics from the Greeks to the 19th century, and they love to learn. And so to a lot of parents, that'll seem like the sweet spot, like they are really enthusiastic and engaged, and yet they're actually learning a very rich content um, that's, you know, maybe that might make somebody like Hirsch uh, happy. So what, what is, what do you think about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there are definitely teachers, like we said before, who are really good at kind of crafting the sales pitch of this is how this is relevant to your lives. Um, But I actually kind of jestingly call that the sales pitch theory of interest, because I'm not sure how realistic it really is. Um, I don't think interest works that way as much. Like if you craft the good sale, if if you just craft a good enough sales pitch, every kid could be interested in physics. Um, I think that's a nice thought. And I think that's, that's a really nice like thing to aim for possibly depending on if you really think physics is something that every kid will benefit from. Um, but I'm not sure that in the end that's realistic. And actually I'll, I'll just say as a teacher educator, I think that teaching our students that indirectly, which we do is, is a really potentially bad idea because it, Sets them up a really impossible task. Again, it sets them up with the idea that all you need to do to motivate your students to learn any particular thing is craft the right sales pitch. Uh, And this goes back to, you know, John Dewey was kind of a proponent of this idea. It goes back before him. All you need to do is craft the right sales pitch, and any kid can be interested in physics. And the flip side of that message is if you don't, if your children aren't interested in physics, it is thereby your fault, and you just need to try harder to craft a good sales pitch. So I'm skeptical of that idea, but I'm also skeptical of the idea that there's something inherently valuable in all kids knowing physics. I'm not sure that I would understand the argument. What what do you think their argument would be of why all seventh graders, I I think that was where it was, would benefit from physics?
0: Well, I think, I hate to speak for other people, but here's, here's the general impression that I have. The idea is not that they can do can rote-memorize modern physics equations and stuff, but that children have an idea of what it means to think scientifically and of the general flow of knowledge. So, for example, if you're taught physics this way, oh, here's something to memorize and then regurgitate on a test, you don't really get a sense for what it means to be a physicist and how this knowledge actually develops. It's just spoon-fed to you, and you're supposed to spit it back up when test time comes alternately if you're taught well these are where the ideas are coming from and you kind of get more of the sense of what was the context for this why were they doing this why were they even working on this project what did it do for them like what problem were they trying to solve and here are the struggles they had and here are the experiments they did i think the idea is that you gain an appreciation of what it means for this knowledge even to exist and how somebody might go about developing this knowledge and furthering it i think that's the general idea I guess my reaction to that
1: is that you could do that with a lot of things. Physics is kind of arbitrary. Um, If the goal is to get people to be able to kind of think about, you know, how a scientist would think and, and appreciate how certain knowledge comes to be. You could also do that with video game coding. You could do that with gardening. You could, you could do that with a lot of things. So it's not obvious to me that physics, has some inherent value as a standard subject that everyone needs to know in order to appreciate how science works or how critical thought works. In fact, there's a really interesting book that I've just been rereading from the late 90s called The Myth of Scientific Literacy. Um, It was written by a scientist who had kind of become frustrated with the state of scientific knowledge. And instead of doing what most people would do, which is we need to teach more science, we need to teach more science, he goes through this idea that like, you know, look, we have this idea that kids need to think in a scientific way, and the best way to do that is to teach them all these subjects, and in teaching them these subjects, they'll learn to think scientifically. And he just goes through the evidence for that, and he he basically comes to a pessimistic conclusion of there's no evidence that teaching them the facts of biology and the facts of physics translate to them thinking more scientifically. In fact, all the evidence is that it has no effect.
0: Hmm. I'll
1: drop that in the show
0: notes, too. Um, let's turn to literature though. So a lot of this classic literature, what I think is the case is that most students are not reading very much good literature by the time they graduate from high school or whatever. And so often that's because it's just not, it's not even taught in the so-called core knowledge schools, as far as I can tell. And so, and a lot of this literature is, can be hard to get into, you know, it kind of, you kind of have to ease yourself into it, into the style of language and such. And so, It can be, I think a lot of students have certain barriers getting into it on their own. But I think the idea here is that getting into this literature, it does more than what Hirsch is saying, which is give us a common body of knowledge. It gives you some profound insights into human psychology, uh, the way that human beings think, the way that their minds work. And so I think one argument would be that it's good to have something like group literature classes where the teacher is it's it's a lot of Socratic method, I suppose, but nevertheless, the teacher is conveying, or at least strongly guiding the discussion, so that you're actually learning what the literature means and what sort of the context as well as. So I don't I don't know. What do you think about that in terms of maybe needing something like a classroom setting to really get into it for students to appreciate the value of it and to get the value out of it.
1: Yeah, so there's one area where we may end up disagreeing, which is um, I think, certainly myself, and I think a lot of other folks who are in in the self-directed education space have a much more pluralistic view of kind of human development. Um, what may be a profound insight for some people will be kind of a really boring thing that I learned once to another person, and uh, and I think we're kind of tolerant of uh, a bit more. Uh, open about kind of, you know, allowing different people to kind of go different ways. I, I feel like the, the human tendency is to say, I experience X as really beautiful and wonderful and profound and it changed my life. Therefore, everyone else should or would experience the same thing with X. And if they don't, they're either blind to the beauty of X or they haven't been taught X right. And I guess my tendency is to go back and say, well, maybe it's actually that the value you got from X was kind of yours and it was idiosyncratic and it might not be translatable to other people And that doesn't mean you shouldn't try to teach to other people But just make sure it's voluntary and if they say hey, no, thank you um, You like X and that's great, but I don't um, Then you should kind of be tolerant of that. I guess the the second thing that that I would kind of object to uh, is is the idea that That you would need a classroom to do those things because one of my fears is that if something is really beautiful one of the worst ways to get people to recognize it is to do classroom activities on it and to turn it into a classroom activity. Um, so I was reading a book called Kingdom of Childhood, which is a set of essays written by uh, graduates of Sudbury Valley, which we've talked about before is a school where there's no curriculum, there's no requirements. You go and you spend your time, however, and they have like, you know, a library there and stuff like that. Um, and one of the chapters that really caught me was this kid who is, I, if I remember correctly, about middle grades years. He said something like okay well one day i was just really kind of bored and I, I didn't really have anything to do so i kind of sat down and i looked across from me in the library and there was um I, I don't remember what the book was but i'm tempted to say it was something it was some french literature something like the count of monte cristo or something like that by demas and he said you know it really was kind of interesting and i didn't really have anything to do so I, I picked it up and started reading it and oh my gosh it was fascinating like i read for a few hours and then i read other stuff by demas and it was just really fascinating and I'm sitting here thinking, like, you know, what would possess a kid who doesn't have to read *The Count of Monte Cristo* to read *The Count of Monte Cristo*? It's a long book. It's, 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 you know, it's translated from French, so it's kind of awkward. And, um, and then it kind of dawned on me that, well, for this kid, it wasn't a classroom activity. It was just this book that was waiting there to be picked up. Um, and I wonder, like, the the books that are great one of the paradoxes that i see is we talk about well this book is really great therefore we should force everyone to learn it and then you think well if it's so great don't you think that people will kind of stumble across it voluntarily and and like we would just culturally keep like perpetuating it because it's so great because i guess i always want to ask the question if you think it's so great why would it have to be forced on everyone and if it has to be forced on everyone do you really think it's that great Um, because you don't seem to have a lot of confidence that people would actually stumble across this generation after generation.
0: I think that rings true. A lot of what you're saying rings true to me. At the same time, it also seems like a lot of people get a lot of value out of just like book clubs. And so I guess what I'm envisioning is something like a book club for kids. And actually, I haven't read this book yet, but I'll mention it. You might be interested. It's it's by a couple named Lawrence and Nancy Goldstone. And their idea is... They they actually ran a book club not for not just for children but for children and their parents so the children and the parents would all get together and discuss books oh that's great and it's called deconstructing penguins it's on my it's on my desk I just haven't gotten through it yet but I have the idea that something like this could work great and it's not just about creating sort of arbitrary you know we're not um, projects about a book but you're actually reading it and exploring it together and my idea is if you can if you actually get the natural buy in from students and and adults um. You know, it just might be really nice to share it. And you, you just get a lot. You can you can learn from other people things that you might not pick up on yourself. Like, oh, this, this is a reference to something else out in the world that I didn't pick up on. And then maybe, that could spin you in a yeah. whole different direction. And then you could become obsessed with that thing. And then you, yeah, absolutely. So I think we actually basically agree. I mean, I think we have this similar idea of what a healthy learning looks like. Um, I'm just, I just, am still thinking through what this means in terms of, you know, what is the role for adults in interacting with, well, with their own children and with their students if they're in a school environment. Um, and I guess, you know, that's just something
1: I'll have to keep thinking through. I think it just goes back to what we talked about a little bit earlier, which is, I think there's like really kind of three roles. There's number one, making sure that kids have access to, to things and, you know, hopefully diverse things. Uh, secondly, making sure they have support and they know that you're there for them. So it's definitely not like neglecting your kids or saying, no, figure it out on your own. Like if they ask you a question, be there. And if they don't know you're there for them, make sure they know that you're there for them. And then the third thing is really just watch what happens. And unless if something alarming happens where they don't grow at all, or they're really frustrated with something and they just can't figure something out. Uh, figure out where to intervene, but do it very strategically and always with an eye towards, I want to let them take the lead and I will follow them unless there's some really compelling reason why I need to kind of take the lead at some point, maybe for safety reasons or because they don't know yet a certain thing that you need to help them with or something like that. So I want to pivot here in a minute to some of your other projects,
0: but I do have one sort of more practical question about this. Um, you know, a lot of parents, both parents work. Or a lot of parents, both parents would like to work if they can. And some some families are single parent households. And so it's one thing to have a self-directed learner in the context of there's a parent with a very flexible schedule who can kind of facilitate uh, helping the, the student, the child do what he wants to do, take him to classes and so on. And that's, that's different than if you just, you know, you either have a single parent household or both parents are working. And so when both, let's say parents are just having a time crunch, they basically need to send their kid to school. Um, so, you know, in Colorado, it's a quote choice state where there's a lot of options. I don't know where, what would, what would be your advice to parents who are trying to, trying to do right by their kids, trying to get them in the best situation possible. Um, They want them to thrive. I mean, the the general goal is they want them to thrive and be successful in life. I mean, what's the general, how do they start out on this path?
1: Well, of course, first, you know, parents and families have to do what's right for them. So if there's a reason why you can't make something like self-directed education work um, and you need to send your kids to school, even if you'd rather not, um, you know, do that. And you can always kind of build in self-direction outside of school hours and outside of the classroom. But if you're really sold on self-directed education, and you can't make it work and, and you have to send your kids to school. You might just let your kids know that, hey, you know, you have to go to this place and and take it for what it's worth. Uh, don't put a lot of importance on it. Don't stress everything in school. Um, I think your kid will have a healthier experience in school if, if it's not just a hyper important, um, you know, competitive kind of thing. Um, but So there are other options. Um, I had mentioned some schools before, Agile Learning Centers. Uh, There are Sudbury Schools, Pathfinder uh, Community School in Durham, North Carolina is one. Um, I'm on the board of directors of that place. And what those places are, are essentially places where kids kind of collectively get together and they do stuff. So there's no curriculum at these schools, generally speaking, unless unless the school, by common agreement of everyone at the school, wants a curriculum. In which case, there'll be classes or something. Um, but most of the kids' time is left free to kind of do what they want to do. So there's often like different rooms they can go into. So there's usually like uh, a kitchen or uh, you know, um, there's like an, maybe an art room or there's maybe a, a video game room or there's you know, a library or, or whatever. And kids are kind of left free to do what they want to do there. Uh, and there are staff that they're usually not called teachers. Um, uh, Sudbury usually calls them staff. Pathfinder calls them staff. I think some teachers might call them guides um, or facilitators. So they're not really teachers. The emphasis is on this person is here to help you do what you want to do. Um, the, the difficulty with those programs, of course, is that they cost money. Uh, most of the schools offer a sliding scale. So it's not, you know, here's the tuition if you can't pay it move on, it's usually they'll work with you to figure out how can we get your kid here in a way that's financially viable for us, but that we can also uh, take kids who can't pay, let's say, the full amount. So, that's always an option. And if you look at those schools, make sure to look at what their sliding scales are, if there are any discounts they offer. Uh, that's a way that, that parents can kind of make it more affordable. Um, of course, there's also, you know, in this day and age, there's also a lot more jobs where you can work from home. So my wife, for instance, is a a book editor. She can work from home. So we have the luxury of that. Of course, that's not going to be open to every parent. Uh, but those are also options if you don't want to just stay at home and survive on one income. Let's say it's a lot easier, I think, in this day and age than it was 30, 40 years ago. So that's another option. Yeah.
0: Well, I admit I have a fair amount of anxiety as to what we're going to do
1: over the next year. <laughs> See, I, you know, I I, I kind of worry about that myself, and not in the sense of what you're talking about, but having researched this field for several years, I, I feel like I don't have a lot of concerns at this point. And I know that I've talked to so many unschooling parents for whom the decision was really arduous because they had a whole lot of fears and a whole lot of doubt and I feel like I'm in a position, especially as a as a researcher in a college of education, I, I have a pretty privileged position to be able to access a lot of the data. And I talk to a lot of unschoolers as part of my work. And um, I've seen just so many success stories. And uh, it may be a skewed sample. It may just be that people who didn't succeed with it don't share their stories. But I haven't come across any examples of people who said, I did this and it just, you know, set me up for for failure, or I really just wish I would have gone to school because I would have been so much better off. I I have not come across that story yet. I don't want to close out without mentioning your book for a few
0: minutes. It's kind of a change of topic, but it's, I mean, it's still on education. And so, and I I haven't, frankly, I haven't read the book yet. I know you did a podcast, which I've listened to on libertarianism.org. So I'll drop in that, that link, and people should look that up if they're interested in this in particular. And the book has chapters on Albert J. Nock, Ayn Rand, Murray Rothbard, Milton Friedman, and other figures. So why don't you just spend a few minutes and give our listeners an idea of what the book's about and why you wrote it?
1: Yeah. So I guess you could say that I'm for educational freedom in two different ways, and they're fairly distinct ways. First of all is what we've been talking about, which is self-directed education, like freedom for the learner. But another area of interest that I've had for a long time, and the book is a result, is in school choice. Um, Know the idea that the question I always ask myself is in a whole bunch of areas in our lives, we have choice and we have private provision of goods and services. And if anything, the debates are on whether government should subsidize those industries or whether government should subsidize consumers or something like that. But the debate over like groceries and home, you know, home sale and stuff like that, the debate is never over whether government should be the primary provider of those services. I think that in most cases we know that's probably a bad idea except when we get to education, which is really interesting. So um, I've researched for many years now, starting with my PhD, um, why it is that in education we accept so readily that the government should be the primary provider, uh, especially in the sense that you allow it to have a 90% monopoly share over this service, where in every other industry we would say, holy crap, this company has a 90% market share, that's a problem, that's a monopoly. We should break that up. Um, So the book is essentially looking at how libertarians and particularly pro-market people, advocates like Milton Friedman, Ayn Rand, have argued through the 20th century for pro-market ideas in education. And so each of the thinkers in the book kind of argues a slightly different rationale for choice in education. So Ayn Rand appeals a lot to natural rights over you know controlling your child's education and Milton Friedman is much more utilitarian he says you know markets lead to the best outcomes and this is as true for groceries as it is for education um Albert J Nock is 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 uh you, you know much more uh, about you know, government is just bad at everything it does. Why would we expect it to be different regarding education? So it's really a, a book kind of fleshing out how each of these market libertarian thinkers are are all pro-market and they're all pro-choice, but they're, they have very different arguments for why uh, education should be left to markets rather than public provision. Okay. Uh, tell us, you mentioned
0: that you're doing your own podcast on education. Tell us how to find that and I'll drop your main academic your main page on the show notes and but tell us anything any other way that is a good idea good way for people to follow your work
1: well it's so new that we just recorded literally our our second episode today so we actually don't have the podcast up yet but in the next several weeks and and maybe by the time this this podcast here is out uh we should have a uh a f- uh, page we you know we plan on putting it into itunes and some other places uh you know google google play uh, podcasts and stuff like that and the podcast that we have Gina Riley who's a researcher at Hunter College and myself we're both really interested in self-directed education and we decided to do a podcast called learning by living that each episode will be interviewing someone new who has experience with learning outside of school so we're going to try to focus on grown people who who didn't go through the schooling process and how they learned, but we might also have people on who, let's say, run self-directed learning centers, and they can talk about how the kids there learn different things. And we really want to get stories out there because it's so foreign a concept to most people, as we are kind of steeped in a school culture, that You know, bringing these stories out and showing these stories, and yes, kids can learn to read without school, and they often, they do on a regular basis. Kids can learn math, and they can learn science, and they can become a classical guitarist who has a graduate degree uh, without school. Um, We just feel like those stories need to be told, and those stories need to be kind of amplified, because we don't hear a lot of them. So by the time this podcast airs, hopefully uh, we'll have it up, and I can give you kind of the
0: platform. Okay. Well, I'll
1: drop that in. Even
0: if it's after the fact, I'll drop that in the show the show page. Well, thanks a lot. I, th- I know it's been taking a lot of your time, but thanks a lot for being on the show. I, there's a lot to think about and certainly a lot for me to explore further and think about, uh, but I do appreciate your time. Oh, yeah, sure. It was great. Thank you. This has been the Self and Society podcast. Our guest has been Kevin Curry Knight. For more, please see ariarmstrong.com.